Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I am Ed Niedermeyer and I am joined, as always, by my wonderful friends and co-hosts, Alex Roy and Kirsten Korosek. Alex, Kirsten, how's it going? We're friends. We are friends. Just kidding. This may be news to you, but we're definitely friends. (laughs) I'm definitely friends with Kirsten because I trust her enough to, to, to have possession of my vintage Porsche 911 for um, over a year, right? Almost a year, actually. And I, I drove it today. It's doing great. Uh, that's great because I trust so few people um, to drive it. Um, it's, you're really one of the best. Um, thank you. Yeah, she, there's, no way, there's no way she would let someone irresponsible as myself drive it if I happen to be in town sometime soon. I'm okay with you driving it too. Hey, question, oh. Kirsten, is it true yeah. that you want to drive it from Tucson to Los Angeles for the LA Auto Show? Um, I mean, do I want to drive it or would I be doing you a gigantic favor if I did drive it? I think are two a huge favor. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to see if I can make it happen, but I think that we need to have, you know, mechanic, take a look at it and make sure it's in tip top shape before I make that drive. Um, if you want to bring it to a Porsche specialist locally to have them check the belts and oil and brakes and whatever it is, I will happily pay for that. Sounds good. Cool. Um, all right. In fact, maybe I'll be dry. I'll drive it out for the LA Auto Show. I think that'd be great. I would love that. Uh, I think, and by the way, on November eighteenth, uh, will you be all of you be there on the night of Monday, November eighteenth? Uh, which we is will. Why, are you going to show us something special? Maybe something movie related. So I'm going to have a West Coast premiere of my new movie, Apex: The Secret Race Across America, and. We will be showing it in the Tech Pavilion on Monday night at 7.30. And if you are already registered for Automobility LA, you will be able to get in. If you are not, uh, you will be able to go – if you go to – wait, what's the link? Um, Apexthesecretrace.com and click on the link. You can go to Eventbrite and get tickets for free. However, in order to get in, we're asking everyone at the door to show us a social media post tagging the movie. Oh, that's, that's interesting. The, the Clever. Ticket for free, but you have to, you have to do that. Mm. All right. So this movie, this movie just came out on TV, right? It just premiered on, on cable. Yeah. So, uh, it came out on NBC sports. It's going to be, uh, streaming on a bunch of services and by sometime in late November and it'll be hit iTunes the first week of December. And I just, I mean, I've seen this movie. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, but like, I, rather than me trying to explain it, like tell what, what is the movie? Like, All right, so, uh, it is, uh, the story of the U S express, which it was the secret illegal race, uh, that, uh, came after the cannonball run. And the story of the U S express is basically unknown. And, uh, it intertwines the U S express races, which occurred between 1980 and 1983 with my run from 2006, uh, which only became possible when I met some of the express drivers and learned about this alleged record set in 83. Uh, that record was 32 hours, seven minutes. And a lot of people believe that it wasn't true. So, and that's what the movie's about. Yeah. So, I mean, I've known about Alex's cross country racing record adventures, you know, since, since we first met, I think, but, um, I didn't really know the whole story. Uh, and this movie is a really, it's just, it's just an amazing thing. It's kind of amazing that this even happened like in our lifetimes. Yeah. Cause like, just if you think about how much society has changed, especially with safety and risk and social media and all those other things, like, I feel like what you did then, like, it was kind of like the last hurrah almost of a world that is gone and never coming back. Well, you know, the, the funny thing. Uh, about what we did in 2006, it was it was kind of the early di- era of digital aftermarket products. So the you know the Garmin units, you know the GPS devices we had in the car were all like circa 2001 technology. Yeah. The radar detectors were you know not connected devices. We still used Blackberries. iPhones didn't exist, and so you know Ways didn't exist. So we're really at the tail end of that time. Uh, you know since then people have gone cross country faster than I did. And they had everything was connected, multiple multiple iPhones, iPads, 
even the radar detectors are connected. Some of them are connected internally to the, in the car to laser jamming systems with, you know, latitude and longitude of known traps. So uh, the fact that people are going faster suggests that for every measure law enforcement or, you know, uh, government uses to monitor driving, a countermeasure will emerge, uh, which makes the idea of people driving in a, you know, connected future. Uh, I'm not sure stuff like this is ever going to end. I think in the future, some hacker will hack an autonomous vehicle to do whatever he wants and spoof its ID and spoof the city networks. And this is, this will evolve and change because people evolve and change with technology. Yeah. I'd rather say that it, this will end and no one will ever break a law on the road, but I just don't believe it. Yeah, no, there will always be someone trying to figure out. I think it just takes a certain level of, of uh, tech expertise and craftiness, you know, because the, for one, the amount of surveillance in cities now and um, that's was very different when you, when you were up to these crazy hijinks. You, you're retired from that life now, correct? Yeah, I'm totally retired, except for the occasional electric car record. Um, but I suspect that electric records will accelerate in frequency and uh, soon, because you know, for many years, the sh- charging speeds and electric vehicle charging networks and the, the, the charging rate were, you know, kind of fragmented and inconsistent and not that good. And Tesla was the only game in town. But now with Electrify America and the Taycan and the new Teslas that are coming, I suspect that electric records will start approaching gas records and surpass them within a couple of years, which means that there's a whole nother era coming of people doing stuff like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that is almost beyond my technical expertise, but I get approached by people in you know, the battery charging sector who consider themselves green who very much want to see what capabilities can be unlocked in EV powertrains. I mean, the big one, obviously, is what happens when vehicles are all connected and surveillance and privacy bump up against, you know, kind of human will. The, you know, the kinds of people who did this stuff in the past were analog, where they were mechanical, they were mechanically inclined and technically apt but in an analog world, an enclosed box system, like they could replace modules um, that you know had kind of closed software. Uh, but to do this stuff in the future is going to require the kind of people who work at AV companies today, and then you know cash out when they go IPO at some point, and then decide they want to do something with those skills that's out of the box. Because hmm. I'm routinely contacted by people who work at AV companies. I mean, all of them. Someone from every AV company has contacted me saying they've got an idea, but they're a little early. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's interesting that people who work on safety are so interested. In, and then even you, I mean, you're a great advocate for, for safety. <laughs> I, no, seriously. And I'm, I'm actually curious, like maybe like, how do you square that? Right. Like, how do you square, you know, you've written a lot of really, really good, important stuff about, about safety and automation and, and technology and driving um, but you used to use technology to do crazy stuff like driving across the country in 30 some hours straight. Listen, if the entire country was blanketed with cities where private ownership of cars was restricted or banned in, in urban cores, um, so, you know, pedestrians would be safer and cyclists could be safer. Uh, but there was like a guarantee, like we are free. We can get from A to B because it's frictionless, affordable transit. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, even I, I mean, who could argue with the notion of making our urban cores, you know, uh, of eliminating, you know, uh, cyclists and pedestrians being hit by human driven cars. I mean, so, so of course, who's against that? But, you know, um, that doesn't mean I don't want to get from LA to New York, New York to LA as quickly as possible. And I will always want to see how rules can be bent. So if that could be done in a connected future where autonomy is fairly ubiquitous and you, one could deploy safety tech, but still have the freedom, set a new record. I mean, that, that intersection, wherever that is, that's where I want to be. Because then you're, you're balancing uh, safety with freedom and not trading <laughs> one off or the other. For any given system, like, you know, the, it, at least tw- 10, 20, 30% 
margin is built in for a device, a machine, uh, you know, for uh, stress testing. So if the speed limit, if you have a, a road where all the vehicles are autonomous and they travel at 75 miles an hour, and but they're capable of 100 safely, I want to find the person who can hack, unlock that extra capability and I want to be in that car. That's just human nature. That's why we've discussed this. That's why, um, not to talk about this is a non-self-driving car, but one of the reasons why people like Teslas <laughs> is because I think that there is this beta testing sort of culture and also people are able to sort of find workarounds um, for like autopilot. Like, you know, we've all seen the videos of, I'm not going to describe how to do it, but how to make it so that, you know, it, the, the car senses some torque. So it thinks your hands are on the wheel, for example, and, and those things. I mean, I think people like that um, or the people who own them. Well, you know, as a Tesla owner, you know, I love driving from you know, New York to LA, uh, New York to Pittsburgh on autopilot, you know, every week. The thing which is insane is that you can, you know, you can engage autopilot, meaning auto steer plus radar cruise up to 90 miles an hour. So there is no apparent, I mean, there's no question that autopilot in one hand does improve my overall safety because it reduces my fatigue, uh, you know, over time. But that is balanced out by my, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, Cognition, I guess you get lazy about monitoring the system. When you're going 90 miles an hour on autopilot, the system should require a, there should be pressure on the torque sensor of the steering wheel literally every three seconds. There's absolutely no reason why you should be allowed to let the car, you know, be at that speed with the system engaged without a very high volume of check-ins. And that is where I differ with the designers of a car that I like. Anyway, uh, we should probably not. Yeah, back to talking about your movie, or we could talk about other things. We can move on from my film, but I would, you know, if anyone who wants to see it, uh, please go, you know, uh, you can follow us on Instagram at uh, The Secret Race. Um, you can also uh, go to apexthesecretrace.com, join our mailing list. We will be rolling out on almost all streaming platforms in late November and in early December. And we're also going to do a bunch of local screenings. So join our mailing list um, and you'll be notified of where the local screenings are. And where I can, I will bring the car, the original BMW, period correct, 2006 mm, tech. It's, it's really funny to get in the car today because you can't believe what was done with the stuff we had that was, was so primitive. It's, it's super cyber, cyberpunk. Are you going to have that in LA then? Uh, I think we will have the car in LA on stage on November 18th. I've also invited... Uh, the CHP, LAPD, and the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. I've invited members of the local uh, city government, city of Los Angeles. And, you know, people ask me, like, people say, oh, you're such an asshole, you're a criminal, you know, you're a baby killer, yada, yada. And my answer to that is, if everybody did, if everybody on the road prepared themselves and trained and prepared their vehicles to the level we did that one day 13 years ago, our roads would be safer and we would not need autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Speaking of which, that's actually a good way to transition into one of the things that we want to discuss today, um, which is um, the idea of a tech lash coming for autonomous vehicles. And, um, you know, the tech lash is sort of an, a hard to nail down phenomenon, but it's much bigger than autonomous vehicles. It, it's sort of, a catch-all phrase for, I think, a bunch of different kinds of um, dissatisfaction or anxiety or issues with um, sort of tech culture uh, in this country. Um, and uh, that can be, you know, ranged from a whole, a whole number of different things. But it seems to have come uh, for the autonomous vehicles now um, in a couple different ways, potentially. I think that we don't need to say the idea or potentially anymore. I think that you're already saying uh, a tech clash, if you will, against AVs yeah. or also really more directed to the form factor of a car. Right. So, right. So there's a couple different different versions of this. You want to you want to address the the sort of urbanist backlash first? Why don't you jump in with the urbanist backlash? Well, so there was a piece in the New York Times that kind of it it didn't it didn't really it wasn't like the case against AVs but it, it kind of um caught a lot of people's attention and um it was by Allison Arieff who 
but I think he's a very uh, uh, intelligent commentator about this stuff. However, I do think there were some issues with this. Um, but the, the headline, I think, is really what sort of made this such a, a much-discussed piece on Twitter in recent weeks. And the headline is, Cars are death machines, self-driving tech won't, won't change that. And the most basic argument, and again, I think this is, this is clearly, there's this piece, but this piece is sort of emblematic of this sort of broader criticism um, that we've been seeing more and more, which is sort of that um, AVs are almost, people see them as a way to entrench cars. Like it's a way to keep car privately owned cars around that by just making them drive. And the, and the argument essentially boils down to um, vulnerable road users. So uh, pedestrians and cyclists are dying uh, more and more. Pedestrian fatalities have increased 41% since 2008 when 6,000 pedestrians killed in 2018 alone. And on top of this, so, and I think those statistics are pretty undeniable. There's clearly a problem with, with pedestrians and cyclists being hit. Um, but I think the controversial part is where uh, she argues that since 2014, over $80 billion has been sent, spent on, quote, smart or connected cars and autonomous vehicles, arguably to make cars safer. The argument is that that hasn't, like, the numbers aren't, you know, the deaths aren't going down. And because we've invested $80 billion, like, clearly it doesn't work. So, um, you know, Alex, you work for a self-driving car company. Like, <laughs> what, what do you, what does, what do you, how do you feel about this? All right. Well, uh, I like Allison Arieff and I read her stuff. I, I, I generally agree with a lot of things she says. And think about this article, which is doesn't make sense to me, is that, uh, you know, she throws out these numbers on $80 billion invested and she conflates, you know, driver assistance technologies with uh, autonomous vehicle technology. So, uh, and suggests that because none of it has made or because it does not appear that that money has made a dent in fatalities on our roads, that it just can never work. And, you know, these are two, two very different things. Driver assistance and, you know, autonomous vehicles are very different things. And there's no question that driver assistance systems are do improve safety. However, it is, <laughs> it is quite clear that a lot of the improvements are, uh, you know, canceled out by the increase of sales of SUVs and larger, heavier vehicles, which are often driven in urban centers. Uh, and additionally, you have the rise of devices and you know, driver distraction, which often cancel out the improvement of things like automatic emergency braking. Right. There's also an awkward, um, you know, was she including ADAS in that assessment? She, she throws out a blanket number and throws everything into automated vehicles, all automation. So according... According to Tim Lee um, of Ars Technica, the $80 billion comes from a Brookings Institution study, Brookings Institution study, um, which consisted of a list of major driving car acquisitions. Um, so it's not even R&D money. And like, like $39 billion, according to Tim, uh, who looked through this study, I haven't actually, um, is, was, uh, came from Qualcomm buying NXP. So one chip maker buying another. That's not really investment in autonomous vehicles. It, 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 no, it's nonsense. Secondly... Not one, not one level four vehicle uh, is currently deployed on a public street today. Not, not none. So we don't know. We have not yet seen, you know, the benefits, you know, the alleged benefits of, of their deployment. And so I, I'm quite sure that Tesla, or at least in her mind, is thrown into that bucket and that she thinks they are deployed and that's not making a difference. So it's that I believe that an editor at the New York Times added uh, self-driving vehicles into the headline as clickbait and that she is just impatient to see change. Let's have, pretend for a second that autonomous technology was not being developed and that ADAS didn't exist. Her article has actually logical power uh, because vehicles, you know, human-driven vehicles certainly should be banned from urban cores, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, they're grossly inefficient, and most drivers are unsafe. But if drivers were safe, her argument evaporates. And so it makes perfect sense that in the absence of superior driver education, that in money should be invested in a variety of things, including better transit, multimodal you know, options and platforms, and driver assistance, and autonomous vehicle technology. You know, the problem is complex, and the solutions are going to be complex, too. Well, and what's going to make it, I think, what one, you know, fact that is oftentimes overlooked 
is that when conversations center around AVs, it's almost as if people go to the moment when the end point, meaning when there are more AVs than human driven cars on the road, or maybe only AV cars on the road in a, in a specific area. What's going to happen for a very long time prior to that reaching that is actually mostly human driven cars now contending with this whole new product platform that it has to engage with. So, and pedestrians and bicyclists and all that. So it's going to be a lot more complex in the beginning before you potentially might see a payoff, which means that there, that any sort of, for lack of a better word, speed bumps get in the way, it could, you know, slow the rollout of AVs even more because of potentially accidents or crashes, I should say, um, or something like that, something bad happening. Yeah. I think this is, I think this is part of a, a broader car lash, I think is what's happening here. Right. I mean, I think both autonomous vehicles and sort of this urbanism, you know, sort of emphasis on urbanism and sort of the, the kind of cool factor and popularity that it has, I think they both come from dissatisfaction with cars. And, and I think, you know, you see this actually quite a bit um, where people argue, um, well, we should, instead of investing in autonomous vehicles, you know, we should be investing in um, better infrastructure to protect bikers and to encourage biking um, and also public transit. And, and, and my, argument with that is not with the cement at all. Like I definitely think that more investment in, in public transit and, 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 and cyclist and pedestrian friendly infrastructure, banning cars from certain parts of the city. I think that's all good stuff. It just doesn't trade off with autonomous vehicles. It's not one or the other. And I think one of the things that p- people particularly miss is, you know, I think people, there's this cognitive thing that, um, um, that happens where people think of, of self-driving cars like like their perception of what an autonomous vehicle is is fully like dominated by this incredibly well developed and like reinforced over a century of you know billions of dollars a year in marketing of what a car is and i think in reality autonomous vehicles are really going to change the whole idea of what is a car fundamentally and they at least have the potential to benefit public transit as much as any kind of private mobility and in fact i think will probably end up really blurring this line between what is public transit, what is a private car. Um, and if public transit were able to take you sort of door to door, but in a bus sort of form factor, like people would perceive it fundamentally different than, than sort of what public transit is today. And so I just, I just don't think these things trade off with each other, but I do also understand why there's anxiety about like, about cars generally. Well, so we are already seeing, um, not AV related, but if you look at what has happened with ride hailing, um, and this is why I sort of forecast that there will be even more pushback with AVs unless AV companies change the type of vehicle they use. Hmm. So what we saw with ride hailing was on the one hand, yes, people who didn't have cars, um, potentially people who couldn't get a license had uh, a means now to get around beyond just a cab. And this changed and we've all talked to people where this has changed their lives. But with that, and there's certainly demand there, but, but with that came another result, which was it did not help congestion because most of these rides were still single, single op- occupancy. So it wasn't necessarily more shared rides. People might've been giving up their cars, but they are a passenger and there's, there's a driver driving them around that doesn't necessarily take more cars off the road. And I think that we're going to see that with AVs. So what's happened with ride hailing though, is that now you're seeing companies like Via, Chariot was an example, but it didn't, doesn't exist anymore. Well, these um, companies that are partnering with cities, they're providing the platform the city puts their branding on it and it becomes an on-demand van, sort of a mix between a bus that's not on a fixed line, uh, you know, that can hold six to 12 people, that type of vehicle. 
Um, and so you're seeing these sort of quasi government private partnerships happening. And I think that that's going to be the same thing that happens with AVs. What I'm mostly curious about is to see is if we end up with a purely government run autonomous vehicle, sort of public transit style product, or if it will be always like a quasi governmental or purely private. I'm going to vote. Uh, I'm going to suggest that it's going to be quasi or private. And not because I work at Argo, but because there's not there are not a lot of examples of purely public run transit that work well, right. at least in the United States. Um, and but a great public private partnership is going to be much more dynamic. Yeah. Uh, I've always said that, so it's not Argo talking. The also it's very unlikely that a walled garden, um, a walled garden. Purely private's going to work, like what you know. Lyft is trying to do, and they're not the only ones. Um, because you may, you're probably going to have you have to have some form of competition to kind of squeeze out the badly run operators. So you know, I'm guessing this is personal that you're going to have two or more AV companies, three or more scooter companies, um, and some other combination of operators all interlocking with the common spine, which is your 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 public transit and the operators who work well with cities and have, you know, planted seeds far in advance are going to thrive because they're going to get feedback earlier and they're going to fit into the neighborhoods earlier. And the operators who parachute in and I mean, meaning pretty much everyone up till now who's tried to deploy, you know, ride hailing and scooters in almost any city mm-hmm. are going to have a lot of problem, a lot of friction. Yeah. People say there's a shortage of engineers. Yeah. There's a, there's a shortage of engineers. What there's really a shortage of are product people, people who really understand product and policy and can walk into a city and 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 have a meeting and have it come off well, the first meeting. Yeah. And I, I think that you you put your finger on something, right? Because we've seen this with with Uber particularly, but Lyft some to some extent, and then the scooter companies, particularly some more than others too, um, of of just going in um and not cooperating. And I think that like that's really what I, th- I think we need to see more of from these companies. I, and I think we probably will, which is like really engaging um, with cities. And, you know, I think one of the things that AVs have struggled with a bit is like, um, sometimes it seems like they're just kind of exist for show, like especially some of these low speed shuttles and stuff like that. It's sort of like it, it, some of, sometimes it doesn't feel like it's really solving a problem. It kind of just more feels like, and and I think more broadly, like sometimes like we're just doing for the sake of doing it because it's new and it's cool. And I think that it's really important for these companies to do what some of the more enlightened companies in other parts of the mobility space are doing, which is really having a proactive conversation with the cities and with just stakeholders generally, get as much input in, as they can into like, where are the problems happening? Where are people dying? Where are, where's the congestion? Where, where are the problems and where can we fit these tools in to, to fix them or address them anyway. If only. <laughs> well, I, think that's, I think that's proven. It sounds idealistic, but I think it's proven to be the better choice over the long term. I think, you know, companies that just scale really fast without engaging cities and, and stakeholders, like they're, they, they are able to scale really fast. And yeah, in the, in the venture capital world, there's some benefits to that. But I, I genuinely believe that like, as as time goes on, that's turning out to be something that is a very uh, it's a very short term advantage that creates all kinds of long term perception and and relationship problems. Well, and and what's happened already? We've we've already seen cities have already woken up to this. They might have been caught off a little bit off guard with TNCs and scooters, but they are awake now. Yeah, and you're seeing there. I I think any city that grappled early on with ride hailing and scooters are, you know, determined to not allow that to happen again when it comes to AVs. And so you you certainly will see examples of states and cities who feel like they, they want to encourage um, money to come into the city. Um, so they will, will go more regulation light. So Arizona would be an example of that. But I don't think that that is necessarily going to be as common as what we see happening in California 
um, or maybe even Florida, which actually has legislation, but they haven't completely opened the doors. There are some, you know, requirements and things, but they want to make it still like a a fairly friendly environment. I think you're going to see more of that than the Arizona situation where they just open up the doors and kind of say, come on in um, because of the problems that have happened with scooters and ride hailing. Right. Well, and, 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 and this brings us to another sort of element of the, of the tech lash, which is um, people being concerned about on-road testing. And I think that's exactly kind of, you know, one of the things that happened, right? I mean, uh, uh, Arizona really went out of its way to be out in front um, in terms of uh, limiting or basically eliminating any kind of regulatory barrier to people testing there. Um, and that contributed pretty directly to the Elaine Hertzberg death, which was really tragic and unnecessary and uh, really sent shockwaves through the whole AV ecosystem. So there's a, a story in the Washington Post that kind of directly ties sort of shifting perceptions of on-road AV testing to the tech lash. And it actually interviews, um, it's Faiz Siddiqui of the Washington Post. He, he interviewed several people who are in Silicon Valley who actually work in the tech sector and other, other parts of it. And they say that based on what they've seen in the tech sector themselves, how they've seen these companies operate, their values, their culture, um, they feel like autonomous vehicles are being put on the road um, unsafely and that basically the public are sort of guinea pigs um, that are, whose, whose safety is being put at risk so that they can develop – so tech companies can develop this technology, which will then make them uh, theoretically extremely rich. And this taps into a lot of the sort of sentiments in the tech lash, um, and it's certainly an interesting perspective. Um, what, do you, what do you guys think? You know, each of these companies have radically different – you know, pol- technologies, uh, policies, um, fences in which they're doing their testing. So it is it 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 is almost impossible to blanket state that they're everyone's doing that wrong, or or that it's safe. You know, everyone's doing it safely. So you know, the great unknown is what is actually happening at each of these companies. How do they test the drivers? How safe are the drivers, even if there's no autonomy at all? You know, what are the policies? Uh, you know, where is autonomy actually being tested? Uh, what is the fence? Like, is it a very safe fence where there's very low traffic? Um, and then are, are the companies lowering their guard because they're in a fairly, you know, safe fence? You know, it, we can speculate about what happened with the Uber crash, but we know that the safe quote unquote safety driver was not performing the function of a safety driver. Like that's apparent, you know, we, that's basically public knowledge. And we also know that they were operating in a fairly low impact fence at night where there wasn't much traffic or many pedestrians. So a lot of things went wrong there. It's not just one thing. It may not even be a technological failure. So compare that to Waymo who have been testing for a very long time and have never had an incident like that. So clearly something very different was happening at Waymo in terms of safety driver training and policies than what happened at Uber on that day. Yeah, You know, I know what happens at Argo uh, because I've gone through the training here and I failed it. <laughs> I was not diligent enough. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say that Argo is, you know, the best because I failed. But again, one can't say that because we don't know what individual companies are doing. We have a small, we have a tiny idea depending on what state they're in based yeah, on do. looking at what they had to submit. But if you've, um, and I have, uh, I haven't FOIA'd them recently, but have uh, about two years ago, I guess, got all of the permits. Like it basically says what they, what they're going to do to train. You have to submit that when you get a permit to test in California. And the range of, of information was like, amazing. Some, it was as simple as saying they would teach the person, you know, over a two hour period to, you know, how to adjust seats and things like that. Then there would be on the other extreme, you know, more of the big AV players and it would be like a three week course. So there's no standard, you know, basically you just have to show, Hey, this is what, this is how we prepare our drivers. Or safety drivers. 
Which, by the way, is the irony of this is incredible because if you think about what's, what's actually happening at Argo and certainly at at least at Waymo, and I assume at a place like Aurora, is you have you know, a level of driver training that at its minimum is superior to the average human driver, of which there are you know, hundreds, 150 million in the United States, and that we allow human drivers out with so little training, whereas these vehicles, I can speak for the ones at Argo, are being tested with drivers at a far, far higher level of training. So it is really important that the companies in the, in the AV sector that are not taking this seriously be weeded out. Yeah. Um, because if one of them makes does something suboptimal, someone gets hurt or killed, um, the companies that are doing it the right way are going to take a, a take a hit. So and it's, it's already happening. You saw that happen a bit. Like there was a reaction where everyone stopped testing, um, and you know took a break, and that was, I'm sure. Um, more because there was a perception that the entire industry was bad. And so no one wanted to be part of that story. Mm-hmm. Everyone ended up um, going back to testing, you know, within a week or two, um, maybe the mo- the most a month. But if that were to continue to occur, and I think we can all guess that it will, I mean, there will be another fatality of some kind involving an AV. Yeah. Um, it just that that is just a probability. Um, it it will happen. So the question is, it's going to be about the circumstances of that happening, and whether it will not maybe just derail the industry, but slow things down. Well, the insanity of the. I mean, we we all listen to the war on cars. Um, you know, our friend Aaron Naparstek, uh, Streets Blog. You know, these are smart people, and I I I agree with a lot of what they say. But when if the answer to a human killing a cyclist is ban all cars everywhere forever. Uh, this is throwing the baby out with the bathwater because logically, you know, human drivers who are incompetent should not have driver's licenses. And if anything, they should be in AVs, buses, or trains. But it suggests that even if cars are made safe or radically safer than they are today, that they should be banned anyway is not necessarily a logical conclusion. So going back to the point that you guys were making about, about sort of the impacts, like this is one of the things that was really disturbing to me about this, this Washington post piece is that um, the, the people being interviewed who again are people who live in Silicon Valley, work for the tech sector or work in the tech sector. um, They all identified the, the vehicles whose presence gave them this anxiety as Waymo's. And like, I, I do, I, generally agree, I think, with with Alex. I don't know, Kirsten, maybe you have a different perspective, but I do think that like, and again, without really knowing fully like everything about how these training programs exist and, and safety protocols are at all these companies right now in a way that we can compare apples to apples, like I do feel like Waymo, relatively speaking, has um a pretty good, pretty good track record on safety. And and what was fascinating to me is that the piece also mentions Tesla uh, not in the context of this as an example of how Silicon Valley uh, ad- adopts uh, uh, new technologies quickly. And to me, it was really weird that like, like for me, and, and I've written several times before about the contrast between Waymo and Tesla. I mean, where Waymo, I mean, Tesla picked up autopilot, which was literally a feature that Waymo refused to put on the road because it was, or to, or to be publicly available because it was unsafe. And, it's, I think it's really important to understand that like people are worried about the autonomous cars like the Waymos and, and I'm sure probably others because they look differently. And because Teslas are just another car on the road, they're not sprouting sensors everywhere. I think people assume that they're kind of like somehow more regulated. Um, they're not just test vehicles supposedly, but the reality is, is that is that Teslas are test vehicles and they're test vehicles whose safety drivers are not receiving any real training. <laughs> and so I think to me, it's like Tesla exemplifies um, a lot of the the sort of broader concerns about how people feel like tech companies are approaching a lot of things, but autonomous vehicles more, more, more specifically. And yet, you know, when someone is, 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 is doing, is taking a different decision, right. That's potentially more risky, but the blowback is not being felt by them. It's being felt by others in the space that creates a really bad, it's sort of like a, a market function that's no longer working. 
And and that is the part of this that really, really disturbs me. I wouldn't say you're wrong. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have... <laughs> I, I definitely know, um, and I'm not going to name the companies, but uh, uh, engineers at other AV companies that when uh, a few years ago, when autopilot started rolling out, they were incredibly concerned that it was going to ruin it for the AV uh, industry, that something was going to happen with, with Tesla and, and that it was like an extreme point of concern. And, and I, um, I don't know if they've adjusted to the new reality, um, or not, but at the time, absolutely. They were super concerned because of exactly what you just laid out. No, and I've heard this too. And, and actually full self-driving people, I've heard people in the AV space, again, like, like level four companies say that they're really worried about this too, because it's also going to, well, it's, it's almost a different level. It, It almost, makes autonomy feel scammy or something. And like the fact that they're taking money and it just the, the drama around that. And so I, I don't think Tesla fans really understand how much concern there is in the autonomous vehicle space about the way Tesla operates in, in purely in, in terms of autonomous vehicles. And, and of course the excuse is always, well, they're competitors. So they, they, of course they're attacking them. But the, the reality is, is that I've not heard any company mentioned as as the source of concern um, about practices that could potentially hurt the entire space, the very technology itself, uh, more than Tesla. There's clearly like the differences in how they're doing things makes people at just about every other autonomous. I've, and, and again, I've heard this from numerous people from numerous AV companies that like both autopilot and this full self-driving thing. Um, really, really trouble them. And again, I don't think Tesla fans really... Well, to be, let me be fair here because I have a Tesla. I have a lot of friends in Pittsburgh, um, a couple at Argo, and uh, people at other companies in Pittsburgh. Aurora's here, Uber ATG's here, you know, Bosch is here, uh, and many of whom own Teslas. Uh, many of us enjoy autopilot. I don't know anybody here who would disagree with you uh, about... Them. And nobody considers Tesla a competitor because they're, I mean not attempting to build the same kind of business as any of the AV companies, or at least the, the full stack. Okay. So I think that instead of continuing to talk about the coming, you know, tech lash or the already here tech lash with AVs, let's, let's give some advice <laughs> um, to close this conversation out. How do you, how do companies avoid this? How do the AV startups in the world avoid this. Is it come down, come down to what um, Alex said, which is like the lack of, or just every company absolutely needing a really good product slash government relations person to be able to walk into a city and um, articulate exactly what they're doing and have that first meeting go well. Is that what's going to solve this? Or is there something bigger and what I suspect is much more complicated solution. Alex. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not, I can't, I'm not, I wouldn't, I can't really answer that question because you don't uh, want to give away, you don't want to help, you don't want to help the world, Alex, or is that, I don't want to give away the secret sauce at Argo, which I believe in. And you know, I'm the biggest skeptic there is. I shouldn't be here except that I do believe in Argo's approach, but man, uh, you know, it is very clear that the leadership at a lot of, some OEMs and many AV companies, the leadership are are saying things that their own engineers don't believe, hmm. um, and promising things on t- to investors their own engineers can't deliver. And the engineers, in good faith, are telling the truth internally, and they're not being listened to. Um, there are two halves to this: there's a technical problem, and then there's a cultural, political, you know, hurdle to be jumped. You gotta do both. Um, but if you're literally exaggerating or lying. Um, front about part one, you're never going to get to part two. Yeah. Uh, and that's most of the sector has been bullshitting their way through this. Yeah. Um, they, a lot of the leadership has to go. They're not credible. And the brands become not credible as well. So Yeah. I, I definitely agree that, I mean, I think step one, and I think a lot of companies get this at this point, that like overhyping is counterproductive, right? And I think that if you think about both of these pieces, um. You know, I think just like when when a couple of years ago when we were in peak hype, um, or or 
the hype was still peaking, um, you know, people got way too ahead of themselves saying, oh, we need to like be thinking about banning driving. Like we need to be like, like it's going to be here tomorrow or like next year. And like, it's going to be everywhere. Like when, when, when the hype was high, people got way, way, way too ahead of themselves. And I think now that there's all this, dis- this trough of disillusionment, like people are way, way, way to the opposite direction and too pessimistic. And don't, so I think in general, like things kind of need to just even out a little bit. Um, but as far as what the, what the companies themselves can do, um, I can think of a couple of things. Um, I think one, um, I think just rhetorically how they talk about AVs and their products. Um, I think that, uh, emphasizing that this is not just cars, that they're not just building something for your typical car, maybe even start showing some sketches or some concepts or something just to show that like, you know, there are other other things, right? I mean, some of this could be um, as much a, a, a vehicle designed for to replace a bus or to augment a bus, um, and to operate in in a way that is like public transit, but still different and better than what we think of it as a, a bus today. Um, I think that that's like the jitney kind of concept. Like, I think showing people that AVs aren't just cars is a really big part of it. I also do think um, that a it's probably a good time for these companies to start thinking about having some kind of advisory committee. Um, and I know advisory committees can oftentimes be sort of whitewash or, or just adds another layer of bureaucracy, honestly. Like. It, it's not really, a, it's not really bureaucracy. It's an advisory committee. I'm not saying they would have a sign off on any fundamental policy, but I think it would f- like formalize a way for concerns and questions and feedback to come from some of these communities that, are stakeholders in AVs, but don't really feel like they are, or, or, you know, or, you know, don't think that AVs are real or something. So, I mean, like, like having a, uh, an advisory committee where you have like someone who is like well-respected in the cyclist and like cycling advocacy community, um, someone, you know, from uh, urbanist and, and, and urban design sort of thing, someone, you know, representing pedestrian interests, someone maybe representing, small businesses. I mean, just like trying to understand who are all the stakeholders are going to be and then giving those stakeholders, um, like I say, a a, a way to get their concerns. And and yeah, like these people will filter some of them, right? Some people's concerns are going to be more serious than others. And and some people will come with their concerns and and this person on the advisory committee will be well-educated about the subject. And they'll say, I understand why you're concerned about that, but that's not actually really going to be an issue. Um, and, but this, like, these are sort of these issues that you bring up are, are the ones that we really need to be worried about, sort of build consensus among their own communities and then be able to bring that feedback to the companies. Um, I, I just think that, that, you know, it, you know, our, our core belief here at the Autonicast, right, is, is we believe in having conversations because, you know, it's the only way we figure this stuff out. Like if you have conversations with as many people from as many different backgrounds as possible, you can start to understand, see a bigger picture, how it all fits together, and and more importantly, you know, make sure that concerns that you might not just think of if you're just thinking about AVs as a technical problem or something, like that those are understood and those are discussed, and that and that whatever it ends up being takes those into consideration. So I I do think that a, translation a- stop bullying and engage people. Okay, so I'm going to just wrap it up with my taking what Ed's suggestion is and just applying it. And I would say this is good for all of the tech industry, but, and I'm not saying this is the only solution, but it helps. Instead of just having an advisory board, this is an example of why it is incredibly important for tech companies who are going to be putting out technology that will potentially reshape cities to ensure that the people working on the tech come from diverse backgrounds and interests. So um, if you have people on your staff who are different genders, for example, different parts of the world, different um, uh, educational backgrounds, and also different interests like your bike advocate or whatever, you are going to end up, even in the development of software, thinking of things that you might not have when you have 30 people working on it with all the same background yeah, and it just helps you ensure that you are actually thinking about other things. Every different person who comes in, who has a different point of view is going to potentially see something that you didn't. And I think we would have avoided 
a lot of mistakes just in the introduction of tech or startups putting out what they think is an amazing idea and getting a ton of backlash if they had more diverse and not just in the t- traditional ways that we think of diversity, but a more, more diverse uh, workforce. It, it just it is only going to help you remove those blind spots. So that's that's the big one. I agree. I think that's a really good point. And that's I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. I feel like I'm gonna leave it on a high note right now. Nothing gets in the way of diversity more than bullshit. Um, so uh, definitely don't lie. Don't lie. With that, we are going to run, but I wanted to leave, end the show with uh, something from the last week that uh, is extremely near and dear to my heart. This is a little bit of audio from a video that was made by... Wait a second. Before you run the audio, Ed, hang on. <laughs> if you want to learn more about the Atonicast, attend our events, follow us, or just meet us when we do events, go to Atonicast.com and, and, and put in your email address, and you'll get updates about all the amazing things that we're doing. You can also follow us on Twitter at the Atonicast. Um, and you can check out Ed Niedermeyer at Tweetermeyer on Twitter. And you can follow Kirsten Korosek on Twitter at Kirsten Korosek or me, Alex Roy, at AlexRoy144. Okay, Ed, please proceed. Close the show. <laughs> well, with that, um, we are going to wrap up with some uh, music from a video that um, I think instantly became the most uh, important uh, cultural output related to Tesla. Um, my book, unfortunately, uh, Ludicrous, is now in second place. Um, this video was made by a group of young Russian entrepreneurs who are trying to get Elon Musk to come and visit them. Um, it is a personal inspiration to me. I hope you enjoy it uh, as much as I do. Be sure to check out, check out the video, um, which we will be tweeting along with this episode. In the famous Russian region, a land of entrepreneurial youth, thousands of Russian people are waiting for your blessed truth. We'd give you all of our money just to see your shiny face. Only Tesla, only SpaceX, only Elon in our hearts. Only Tesla, only SpaceX, only Elon in our hearts.